it is uh, it is really fascinating. It is one of the uh, striking features uh, of this passage that God speaks at all uh, to Abram to anyone, uh, but particularly that God enters into bargains uh, or what uh, the Bible calls covenants uh, with Abram. Uh, God, being God, is not obliged to speak at all or make himself known or reveal himself. He's certainly not obliged to bargain with us. Uh, On a much smaller scale, even me as a father, particularly with very young children, I'm not obligated in any sense to bargain with my children. I'm I'm their father. Uh, I've been around longer than them. Uh, I know best, or at least I should. Uh, Nevertheless, sometimes I do bargain with my children. Uh, sometimes that's, uh, that's their own strength and my weakness uh, as I get drawn into making uh, deals and bargains that I can never win from. Uh, but other times, other times I do it deliberately in love uh, because actually uh, I want for my children uh, to feel like they're a part of things. I want for them to grow through relationship uh, and to understand give and take and obligation and responsibility. Uh, and that, uh, the best of that... Uh, and dial it up a, about a thousand notches uh, is what we, the dynamic we get between God and Abram uh, through all of this. Uh, God enters into a fairly detailed back and forth with Abram in chapter 15 of Genesis. It's God who shows up and makes himself accessible. Uh, it's God who makes a series of commitments to Abram and his offspring. Uh, and Abram responds, it says, uh, with faith. Uh, He believes God and it says uh, in that key verse in the middle that God credits his belief or his faith as righteousness. Uh, But as well as his faith, Abram responds with questions, a lot of questions. Uh, And these questions in this passage, they don't uh, demonstrate a lack of faith, uh, but certainly a desire for detail. Uh, And God's constant humouring of Abram and giving him answers and even demonstrating uh, through uh, things like the stars uh, and uh, and uh, this uh, this elaborate uh, ritual with the animals and the blood and the fire, uh, God continues uh, to meet Abram uh, and to speak to him with love and with clarity. Uh, God tells Abram again that he will bless him. Abram asks again about the offspring that God has promised, because Abram's getting old and his wife is too. Um, And God tells him that he will have a son, he will have his own son from his own body, not uh, this Eliezer, the slave uh, that's been born in his house. And God points Abram to the stars saying that that's that's the kind of total that Abram's offspring uh, will amount to. And then God reminds Abram of the promise that he will possess the land of Canaan. Uh, and Abram asks how he can know this for sure, and God tells him uh, just this curious thing that, uh, that we've looked at here, where God tells him to tear apart a heifer, a goat, a, and a ram, and to wring the necks of a turtle dove and a young pigeon. His bloody, gru- a gruesome sacrifice. And then while Abram falls into a deep sleep, a flame and a pillar of smoke pass between the pieces and that somehow seals the deal. But I suspect if you're reading this for the first time, you're thinking, how? Why? What does it mean? And so we're going to come to that ritual, that particular ritual and the imagery that's in it. Uh, and we can actually know with a fair amount of certainty what is going on there and why, uh, because of what the Bible reveals uh, when we piece things together. 
Uh, but we're going to go uh, work piece by piece up until that point. So not every single verse, uh, but picking a few verses uh, just to uh, just to let us uh, guide in order through the passage. So verse 1 of chapter 15, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And two obvious questions, I think, arise from these words. First of all, what are these things that it's talking about? What has gone before? Um, and the second is, uh, there's a vision. So what does Abram see? It's a vision, right? What does he see? So first things first, going back to these things, what are these things that happened before uh, that have led up to this point? So if you haven't been with us over the last couple of weeks, here's a sketch from about the end of Genesis chapter 11 up until the end of chapter 14. Uh, Abram, uh, we learn, is from an idol-worshipping family uh, in the land of Ur when God speaks to him. God calls Abram to leave his country and his family and God tells him that he will bless Abram uh, and that ultimately he will bless the whole world through Abram. Uh, With nothing but faith to go on and a God who speaks to him, Abram packs up and leaves his family and his land and he travels. Uh, In his travels... Uh, He arrives in a land called Canaan and God says, this is the land, this is the one that you and your family are going to possess. But before long, there's a famine in that land and so Abram travels to Egypt. And in Egypt, Pharaoh steals Abram's wife, Sarai. But God sends plagues on Egypt, does this sound familiar? And he rescues Abram and his family from captivity in Egypt, uh, blessing them as they go. Uh, Back in the promised land of Canaan, there's trouble at home when the households of Abram and his nephew Lot start bickering. Uh, Abram decides for the sake of unity and peace that they should go their separate ways. He gives Lot first dibs uh, and then Abram takes what's left. But again, God reconfirms this land, Canaan, every bit of it will be yours. Uh, nephew, Nephew Lot gets tangled up with a bad crowd in Sodom. Uh, Some rival kings steal them away and Abram comes to his rescue, attacking the kings himself, uh, leading from the front as an old man but with servants uh, behind him as well and they set Lot free. And then there's at the end of chapter 14 the the king of Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of righteousness, uh, king of peace, who is also a priest of God, though he seems to have come from nowhere Uh, This mysterious man presents Abram with a meal of bread and wine and again confirms God's blessing to Abram. These are the things that have gone before. Here's where we are, a man who has been spoken to again and again by God of a promised blessing that is sure to come, but who is still waiting, really. So Abram's in the land, he's got an awful lot of flocks and herds in the land, but it's not his, he's a wanderer in that land. Uh, He's still having to fight and defend uh, for himself and his family. Uh, And he still doesn't have even one child to his own name, although his household of workers is growing. That's the things. What does he see? It's a vision, after all. Uh, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So what did Abram see? Well, we can make some educated guesses. Uh, Perhaps an angel, a blinding light, a man with snowy hair, Mostly smoke. There's a few options if you look at uh, various visions from other passages in the Bible. But the fact is that we're left to guess in this instance because out of this vision, all we hear about are God's words. Now, isn't that interesting? That in a vision where you would expect to uh, learn uh, what was seen, all we learn is what's spoken. 
And I have to say that that in itself reminds us of an important lesson, that more than anything else, the gift that God has given us to inform and feed our faith is his word. It's through speech that God has mainly chosen to reveal himself. Now that might seem a bit academic, it might even feel a bit dry that God is a God who speaks. Maybe you're not much of a reader and you think, gee, the word is it's hard for me to get into. Maybe you're more of a visual person, so it might seem disappointing to you that oh, God is, God's into words when I'm into pictures. Uh, to which I'd say two things to start. First, let's not undermine what speech is. Sometimes we talk as if, uh, we speak as if talk is cheap, as if words carry no meaning. But that is not even close to true. If all you have is words, then you've got an awful lot, in fact. Now, word can be broken, lies can be told, but words give us an awful lot. Speech is powerfully and deeply relational. Uh, It's a well-known truism, isn't it, that good communication is central to any successful relationship, whether it's a romantic relationship or or, or a marriage, or whether it's more of a business deal. Uh, Open lines of communication are absolutely vital. So let's not... Uh, undermine what it is to to hear from a God who speaks. So that's one thing. Speech is powerfully and deeply relational. Uh, but the other thing is uh, is this that uh, covenant and promises, in particular, because this is how God is speaking mainly to Abram. He's making verbal commitments to him. Well, these things bind us together in a very deep and heavy way. Not only relational, but also in obligation. Uh, And remember, God is not obliged to bargain with us, but in his grace and kindness, and and I'll occasionally use this word, in his condescension, uh, which is an act of his grace, not that he's condescending towards us, looking down on us, uh, but that from on high, God would be pleased to stoop uh, and be among us, uh, is an amazing uh, testament to his love and his grace. So covenants and promises bind us in obligation. So God is a God who speaks and uh, this is one of the most fundamental things uh, about the God who is, even Jesus in fact is described in John's Gospel as the Word, the eternal Word of God. Uh, Again, God's revelation through speech. We'll move on a little bit more quickly for a few verses. Verse 5, it says, God brought Uh, Abram outside and said look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them and then he said to him so shall your offspring be. God recommits himself again to Abram and just as a reminder one one who is more powerful doesn't need to make promises to one who is less powerful. The one with the power can do whatever they like but that's how God reveals himself to Abram and it's how he commits himself to us. It's through promise God enters into covenant and obligation to us. So you might remember, uh, coming back to this verse in verse 5, uh, back in chapter 13, God told Abram to walk across the land of Canaan and to try to count the dust if he could. And that the dust, uh, as impossible to count as it is, would be an indication of how broad his family would be in years to come. Well, now in chapter 15, God does a similar thing, uh, but different. He tells Abram instead to lift his eyes and look at the stars. 
and to count them if he can. And, and his message is the same, that Abram's family will be just as impossible to count. What a beautiful uh, gift. Each of these pictures, especially, uh, each on their own is amazing, but put together uh, really is a beautiful, precious thing uh, for Abram, old Abram, as he walks the land. Whether the sun lights up the dust and the sand, or the night reveals the stars, day and night, Abram has before his eyes, who said God doesn't speak to visual people, before his eyes a picture, a constant picture of God's overflowing goodness. And the same thing whether he's looking down or whether he's looking up, day or night, uh, he's got dust, stars and sky showing just the breadth uh, and impossible generosity of God. Uh, Psalm 19 is written uh, about a thousand years after uh, these words are spoken to Abram. Uh, It's written by King David and King David wrote uh, in Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So God speaks to us um, plainly through his word, uh, but magnificently as well through the things he's made for us. So it is good, even as we emphasise the importance of God's words, uh, that while God speaks most plainly through speech and written word, the uh, the words he created, the world he created is his picture book for us. So we have sand and stars, rainbows, remember, uh, to remind us of his kept promises, water to cleanse and baptise us, bread and wine uh, to feed our bodies and our faith as we will take the Lord's Supper next week uh, as, as part of our regular worship. So God is not quiet. And then in verse 6, it says, Abram believed the Lord and he, the Lord, counted it to Abram as righteousness. This is a remarkable verse. It's not just that uh, God uh, saw Abram's belief and thought, oh, well, that's, you know, that's, a, that's a good mark on his name uh, that sort of works to maybe balance the scales be- between some of Abram's mistakes. No, he counted it to him as righteousness, uh, which uh, is almost like legal or accounting kind of speak for saying uh, he has cancelled actually every debt. Uh, God has done a remarkable thing and it sort of, it just flows by us in verse 6. But as, as Abram continues to relate to the Lord uh, with faith, God gives Abram a clean slate, righteousness, Absolute forgiveness. This verse gets picked up a couple of times in the New Testament for the Apostle Paul because uh, as you read the New Testament, even from the time of Jesus, uh, you, you discover that the Jewish people had, um, had an over-dependence on their lineage and connection to Abraham and the promises that God made to him. And Jesus tries really to, uh, to uh, try and help people see uh, that Abraham, uh, being joined to Abraham by blood, uh, is not the thing that saves you. 
Just being in his family by descent is not going to get you a free ticket into God's kingdom. It is by relating to God through faith. That's the, that's the example and the lesson of the life of Abraham. Uh, or Abram, as he's still called. He, his name gets changed in a couple of chapters. The lesson is that we come to God by faith. And as we relate to God in faith, as he speaks to us and we believe him and take him at his word, that in that relationship, God accounts righteousness to you. As it turns out, Abraham is the father of all who believe, not just those who are descended uh, by birth uh, or who receive circumcision, which comes up in two chapters' time, I think, uh, in, um, in Genesis. Uh, there's a lot more to be said, and we're going to keep re- revisiting the New Testament through here, but we'll move on because uh, we don't want to miss the imagery of this chapter itself. God says in verse 7, while he's still revealing himself to Abram, he says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. Now I'm pausing over this verse because in this verse as well, there's an interesting foreshadowing. Uh, In the next book of the Bible, in Exodus, in chapter 13, uh, in chapter 3, sorry, Abram's descendants are in slavery in Egypt. Uh, And um, and in fact, God foreshadows this uh, even in this speech. We'll come to that soon. Uh, So God is foreshadowing that uh, Abram's descendants will be in slavery. In Exodus, they are are in slavery in Egypt. And Moses, uh, who becomes Israel's saviour, he's been keeping sheep in the desert for 40 years when he sees a bush that's on fire but not burning. Uh, And that burning bush or not burning bush is God revealing himself. And God tells Moses to approach Pharaoh to let his people go. And Moses asks for a bit more information from this burning bush. And God says to Abram, I am who I am. I am the Lord. It is the Lord, the one who is known as the I am, who in the book of Exodus rescues the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. The same God who back here in Genesis chapter 15 foreshadows that same speech, calls himself by the same name, I am the Lord, he says to Abram. When he reminds Abram how he'd rescued him from being a slave to idols. And then get this, in the New Testament in John chapter 8, we hear about one of many fights that the Pharisees and religious leaders pick with Jesus. And they say to him, um, oh no, Jesus says to them, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Remember, Abraham's like 2,000 years before the time of Jesus. And Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Very deliberately claiming to be God The same God who revealed himself to Moses and Abraham before that. Jesus is the eternal word of God. The one who saves us from slavery. Just as uh, the Lord saved Abram and his people from slavery to idols and Moses and his people from slavery in Egypt and all who believe in him by faith uh, from slavery to sin I am the Lord, said Jesus. 
And then we get to this ceremony uh, in verse 10. Well, actually in verse 9 is where God says to Abram, uh, bring out um, uh, first a heifer, uh, then, uh, what is it, a goat, uh, and then a ram, uh, and then a turtle dove, uh, and a pigeon, and tear them apart, and let the blood flow. And Abram does it. He cuts them in half and he lays, it says in the ESV, each half over against the other. We actually learn from context uh, that uh, what this means is that they, they're, sort of, they're facing each other uh, and there's a passage in the middle, possibly on either side of a, of a small uh, gully uh, with the blood actually flowing into something like a river down the middle uh, is, uh, is part of the picture that we're invited to see. Abram's believed everything that God's told him so far, but again, he asks God for some assurance that God will give the land he's promised, and God tells him to tear up these animals. And immediately, Abram does as he's told. Uh, and, um, and, and in fact, uh, yeah, we, we're not even told that God tells him to tear them up, but Abram seems to know, or maybe he was told, and, uh, and that bit's just not written down. Uh, but this is what he does. He cuts them up and he lays them down. But why? Why does he do it? Why does God say to do this? We know why Abram did it, because God told him to do it. But why does God say to do this? What's this all in aid of? Well, when you come across something like this that's a bit mysterious, it seems out of the blue, it, it doesn't make any sense to our, uh, certainly our modern ears, um, there's three ways at least of piecing together the significance of this mysterious stuff. One is to read on. Uh, because sometimes by reading on, uh, you go, oh, okay, that's what this was all about. All right. And we will read on, but it doesn't. And reading on just this immediate passage doesn't give all the clues. The other is to look to other parts of the Bible. Uh, because as we uh, look to other parts of the Bible, the Bible has a great knack of interpreting itself to us. And so we're going to do that soon. We're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture. The other thing is to look at history. And to understand uh, what other writings uh, do we have that tell us about our practices in this time. But first, let's look at other parts of Scripture. So in Jeremiah chapter 34, so this is, you know, a thousand plus years later, about a thousand and a half years later, um, Jeremiah is a prophet. And we learn that at some point, and it's kind of, you could read it for yourself in Jeremiah chapter 34, it's the last paragraph in the chapter if you go there yourself. Uh, But we learn that at some point, the people of Judah, uh, this is Israel's southern kingdom where Jerusalem was, and this is uh, the the people who have descended from Abram and his family. At some point, they took it on themselves to separate a calf, much like this, and they walked down between its pieces as a sign of renewing a covenant with God. We also learn, if you read that passage at the end of Jeremiah chapter 34, that they didn't keep their word. They made a commitment to God uh, and they did it in this bloody fashion, but they didn't keep their word. And so God's word to them through the prophet Jeremiah is this. God says, because they didn't keep the terms of the covenant, I, this is God speaking, will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between. So God is saying that they would become... uh, They would be conquered uh, and their bodies would lie scattered like food for birds. So the imagery of this, what happens uh, in Jeremiah uh, and what happens here with Abram, uh, this kind of brutal and bloody covenant is apparently something like this. We make the terms of an agreement between us. This is God and Abram. 
and we sign it, so to speak, with the blood of animals. And the blood of the animals is an indication that if one of us breaks this covenant, it will be that man's blood who is spilled. This is a a binding oath, as binding as it can get. If you break this oath, you will be torn apart and you'll become bird food. And history, remember I said history is the other thing we can do, uh, we can bring into this. History confirms that this kind of thing uh, wasn't unique for God's people either. It was how other contracts in in similar time and, and part of the world, other contracts between a king and a subject were sealed with the death of animals symbolising uh, what, what would become of you if you broke the covenant. The interesting thing, though, which we'll come to soon, is that Abram doesn't walk between the pieces. He goes to sleep. He sits by them, surrounded by their draining blood, fending off the birds until darkness comes and sleep with it. So we will look at why Abram doesn't walk through the pieces soon. But first, let's see what God says. Verse 13. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be afflicted for 400 years. First, he says, they'll be sojourners. They'll be wanderers in a land not their own. They'll be made slaves and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. Well, this is very surprising. Very surprising. It seems to run dead against everything God has told Abram so far. It's all been blessing, blessing, blessing. Uh, I'll give you my protection. Uh, I will give you offspring. I will give you land. But now he's saying, for years, hundreds of years, your offspring aren't going to have this land. They're going to be slaves. But still, here God tells Abraham, Abram that not only... Will Abram not see the fulfilment of God's promises in his own lifetime? Although in his own lifetime, God does tell him that he'll have things okay. But generations and generations will die and suffer before God's promises come good. Does that sound like waste to you? It sounds like waste to me. I, I, I take God at his word that it's not waste, but his wisdom but it's not an easy thing to rationalise. We get just one clue as to the why, why it's going to take so long. In verse 16, God says, uh, and they shall, your generations, your future offspring, they will come back here in the fourth generation. Another way, it seems, of saying 400 years. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites are some of the people in this land. And so part of God's plan for giving Abram the land that God hasn't revealed to Abram or anyone before this point is not only to bring blessing to Abram and the nations through him, but to bring judgment to these, this rebellious people uh, who were the Amorites. So in the patience that God requires of Abram's offspring, waiting years and generations of suffering... God is actually showing grace and patience to the nations. He's giving them a chance to repent before giving them the destruction that, they, that God knows in advance is going to come their way because they don't repent. And still he gives them time. 
And all of this together, together tells us at least two things. It tells us something about God and it tells us something about life. About God, it, it, it tells us that God's slowness to bring judgment is a reminder of his patience. Every new day is a reminder of his grace and goodness. On a very small number of occasions in the Bible, God will strike a person dead immediately for their sin or he'll wipe out a city with fire from heaven, which we'll come to in a couple of weeks. Uh, That's certainly his right. But how many times does he not do that? I don't want to make too fine a point of that. I don't want to balance God out and say, well, okay, there's a bit of bad, but there's a lot of good too. Like We're not really playing that game. Uh, That's not bad when God exercises his judgment. That is his sovereign right. And it is just when he does it, not capricious or wicked. And that judgment is what anyone standing before God deserves for their sin. But God has shown through years and generations of patience to nations the same thing that he shows to us when he gives us second chance after second chance after second chance. It tells us that God is patient. It also tells us something about life. Life is going to be hard. Even to the man who is promised blessing and to be a blessing and wealth and a dynasty... God doesn't spare Abram his own challenges. And even now for us, uh, if we come into the modern time, we've seen Jesus die to destroy sin. Abram didn't have the benefit of seeing that. We've seen Jesus die to destroy sin. We've seen Jesus rise to destroy death. And yet we continue to sin and each of us will still die. And along with Jesus' promises for eternal life, he also promises suffering and trials and persecution for anyone who f- follows him. He guarantees that much for the, for the length of your days. So brace yourself for a bitter struggle. God doesn't hide the facts, but he stands by us. And we need to, with Abram, face each day uh, carrying the shield of faith. Verse 17, the end of the the picture. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. This is the pieces of these broken, bloody bits of meat. Where do the smoking pot and the flaming torch come from? It's sort of, it's a picture that seems to come from nowhere. Well, again, like, uh, like before, we look to other parts of the Bible to see if we can get any clues. Let's go to Exodus again. Exodus chapter 13. God leads Abram's descendants out of Egypt. Just as he's promising to Abram now, after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, God is now at the point of leading the descendants out of Egypt. And he goes ahead of them himself. And have you read Exodus? Do you know in what form God goes ahead of the Israelites as he's leading them out of Egypt and through the desert? It says, by day, he is a pillar of smoke, and by night, he is a pillar of fire. And so here in Genesis uh, chapter 15, the smoke and the fire together are a picture of God, how he's choosing to manifest himself to his people. In Exodus, when God goes ahead as a pillar of smoke and fire, 
He leads the Hebrew people through the Red Sea by parting the waters. And when the Hebrews are through, God lets the waters crash back into place over the pursuing Egyptian army, scattering their bodies. And back here in Genesis chapter 15, in this bloody covenant ceremony that God is enacting hundreds of years ahead of time, he is enacting how he would rescue Abram's descendants. He would go ahead of them as fire and smoke. And he'd bring the waters down in judgment on the Egyptian people, leaving their bodies scattered like so many pieces of bloody animal flesh strewn about. But God is giving also a foretaste of something even more significant as well. Not only of what he would do to the Egyptians, but also what he would do through Jesus. Remember in these practices, as I told you before, it was apparently common for both parties to pass between the dead animals. Or according to the prophet Jeremiah, it was only God's people who passed through because God wasn't present in that way he didn't manifest as fire and smoke on that occasion so it's just the people the subjects not the king the lord the subjects who go between the pieces bringing curses on themselves when they fail but all the way back here in genesis chapter 15 god is turning that whole dynamic on its head while abram sleeps god spares abram the responsibility god himself makes the promise God calls the curse on himself by passing through the pieces of meat himself. God is saying in in effect that if either party, him or Abram, should break the covenant, that a curse will fall only on God because he's the one who passes through. God puts himself on the block to suffer the fate of the sacrificed animals if either party breaks a covenant. Well, God doesn't fail, but Abram's offspring did fail. They return again and again to the idols that God rescued them from. And we return again and again to sin. But incredibly, the curse doesn't fall on us because God walked that road for us. God brought the curse down on himself. And in the New Testament, it says this, Paul, the apostle, says this. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit again through faith. Christ took the curse for our breaking of the covenant on himself. It is his work and our faith, not our work. His work, our faith. And then one of the things you notice if you, if you take the Bible as a whole is that through the Old Testament there is a lot of blood. There's sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And suddenly, in New Testament Christianity, no more blood. That is because since Jesus gave himself, then the last necessary drop of blood has been spilt. He became the curse, hanged on the tree, bled for us. The last bit of blood necessary has already been spilled. 
given for us. And now we take it in this sanitised version. We, we eat a bit of bread and drink a bit of sweet grape juice and go, isn't God good? Well, he certainly is. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing that we would come to you, God Almighty, but you first came to us. Uh, You've revealed yourself through your word. Uh, You've revealed yourself through your son. But you also, uh, having brought on flesh yourself, became a curse for us. So that the curses that we would have brought on ourselves, you have brought down on yourself so that we can go free. And we are in awe of a God who makes covenants and keeps covenants and who takes all the necessary obligation on himself. Pray that you'll help us to remember uh, this precious and final gift of Jesus himself. Uh, May his body and blood be our food. Um, May we uh, live for him in faith. Amen.